0: We are live. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the fourth and final webinar of our four-part March 2016 series titled Youth-Led Inquiry, Connection, and Action, Redesigning Civic Education in the Digital Age. And this series was organized by members of the Educating for Participatory Politics Project and the Council of Youth Research. Um, If you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. Um, I'm Erica Hodgin, and I'll be your co-host today along with Nicole Mira. And I'm the Associate Director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at Mills College and a former middle school and high school teacher in Oakland and also in Richmond, California. So today we're talking with Perry Bello-Handelman and Eddie Lopez and John Rogers about what civic educators and researchers can learn from each other across a range of settings and projects. So today we'll be talking specifically about the work of the Educating for Participatory Politics Project and its intersections with the Youth and Participatory Action Research of the Council of Youth Research. So I'm really excited for us to talk across these projects today and I'm going to turn it over to Nicole now so she can introduce herself and also share a couple more details before we jump in.
1: Thanks Erica. Uh, I'm Nicole Mira and I'm an assistant professor of English education at the University of Texas at El Paso. Uh, I earned my PhD in urban schooling from the UCLA Graduate School of Information, Education and Information Studies and I'm also a former high school English teacher and coordinator of the UCLA Council of Youth Research. Uh, before we dive into our conversation let's go over a, a couple of quick details. Uh, to those of you watching live right now we welcome your comments and questions through either the Twitter hashtags hashtag connected learning or hashtag digital civics or the Q&A feature that you should see in your video player we'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout Uh, The webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's educatorinnovator.org, and is part of a series of programming related to Letters to the Next President 2.0 which engages and connects young people ages 13 to 18 as they research, write and make media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them in the upcoming election As such, you can also use the hashtag 2NextPrez if you'd like to engage that way. This webinar will be available as a resource on letters2president.org where you can find many other resources and opportunities related to the election, writing, and digital literacies. Uh, So now, before we get started, let's give everyone a chance to introduce themselves. So I'm just going to go down the line that I see on the bottom of my screen. So if we could start with Perry.
2: You might want to unmute yourself first. I do that all the time. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, my name is
3: Perry fellow hanselman I'm a teacher at Coliseum College Prep Academy. I've been teaching there for five years and eight years in Oakland Unified in various capacities. Um, and I currently uh, run our social justice pathway at the
2: school and teach ethnic studies and civic engagement.
1: Awesome. Uh, Eddie?
4: Hi, my name is Eddie Lopez. I teach at Roosevelt High School located in Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles. I've been teaching for 11 years. Um, I'm a social studies teacher, so currently I am teaching an ethnic studies course for Latino males. The program is called Urban Scholar Compadres um, and U.S. History. And I've worked with many of the folks on the panel with the Council of Youth Research.
1: And last but not least, John.
5: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Rogers. I'm a professor at UCLA in the School of Education and Information Studies. I'm also affiliated with two centers. One is the Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access, or IDEA, and the other is Center X that houses our teacher education program and our principals program as well. IDEA um, was the center out of which the Council of Youth Research emerged.
1: Awesome. And I think now we're gonna, uh, before we start the conversation, in case there's folks that are just coming into the webinar and haven't had a chance to get to see what we've done over the past month, uh, we wanted to talk about the two projects that our groups are coming from. Uh, So Erica, if you want to start off uh, giving us a little description of EPP.
0: Sounds great. So um, the EPP project, because I know there are so many acronyms, um, the EPP project stands for Educating for Participatory Politics which is actually an action project based out of um, the MacArthur Research Network on youth and participatory politics. So the YPP, another acronym, Research Network, has been studying youth, civic, and political development and participation in the digital age over the last um, five or six years through various um, research studies and research teams um, across the country. And we've been really focusing on the affordances of digital media and how those have created more opportunities for youth to engage in what we call participatory politics, which are actions that either individuals or groups um, take part in to either get their voice out there um, or to influence issues of um, public concern. So that could be investigating issues, um, promoting dialogue, or giving feedback. Um, impacting cultural norms and mobilizing others to get involved in issues that matter to young people so drawing on this research the EPP project has been working with educators and youth to develop a framework of core practices of participatory politics and also pilot educational resources that articulate this a sort of new vision for civic education and this changing landscape so The EPP project is is a combination of different teams. So we have um, a team of folks in Los Angeles. We also have um, two teams that have been working in Chicago through um, the Black Youth Project and also through Facing History and Ourselves. And then we have a team in Oakland. So I'm really excited that Perry can join us from our project in Oakland. Um, and in Oakland the project is called Educating for Democracy in the Digital age and this project is taking a little bit of a different approach and working with the entire school district. So not only are we working with teacher leaders like Perry, but at the same time we're also working with the district to try to align civic engagement and also digital literacies alongside of the um, sort of priorities that the district is focusing on. So I'm excited to, Um, talk a little bit more about that project alongside of the Council of Youth Research. I want to add in one last thing which is just that these resources that have been developed by the different EPP teams are now available online through a collection, a sort of curated collection of resources. And so if you go to ypp.dmlcentral.net and click on educators at the top of the screen, those resources are included there under each project and that's curriculum that's been developed by teachers, um, and also implemented in the field, as well as blog posts by educators and members of the team, sort of reflecting on doing this work. So I'll turn it back over to Nicole to give the overview of your project.
1: Sure. And just to confuse everyone even more, uh, we are not the Los Angeles team of the EPP network, even though I feel like we uh, our our work has so many parallels to each other, and I think we have a lot of uh, great connections to talk about. Um, but Uh, In a a summary, the the UCLA Council of Youth Research uh, is a YPAR program, another acronym, which stands for Youth Participatory Action Research. Uh, At its most basic level, it's about transforming who does research, obviously introducing young people to the project, uh, how we do research, which is in a participatory, inclusive fashion, and why we do research, which is to create social action and fight for social justice uh, with young people as our leaders. Uh, So our project is unique because it is uh, an out-of-school project, but as you'll see when we talk to Eddie, and many of the folks in our network have actually transformed this work and brought it into the classroom space as well. Uh, Dr. Rogers, John, and Ernest Morell, back in the 1990s, back in 1997, started what became the the Council of Youth Research when they worked with uh, Santa Monica High School. They were asked to come in and do an evaluation of uh, some of the issues the school was facing, and they thought that maybe uh, instead of talking to researchers about it we should talk to the young people who are there every day uh, at the school site and from that point we kind of expanded to five different high schools in South and East Los Angeles Uh, and now it's been generations of students that have come through our project uh, who meet after school and meet once a month at UCLA uh, and meet over the summer for five-week sessions to create uh, multimedia projects exploring research questions of their own creation about the issues and challenges they see in their schools and communities. Uh, we've been lucky enough to uh, bring our youth to uh, academic conferences so that they can present to adult researchers so they can show that uh, they can speak for themselves instead of always having adults speak for them. Um, and their work is available online and we'll be spreading links so that everyone can see some of the multimedia projects that they've been doing. Uh, but one of the things that we'll talk about as we move forward is kind of how the in-school and out-of-school environment Um, mesh when we talk about civic education and digital civics. So I'll stop there for now so that we can jump right into our discussion. Um, And I want to start with a question for all of our panel. Maybe we can start with our teachers first. Uh, I'm wondering if you could speak to how you think educators can use digital tools to connect students to authentic audiences and to civic issues. So maybe we can have um, Perry and Eddie start us off.
2: Hi. They're, they're
3: uh, being so sorry. polite. Yeah, being so ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, am I starting? <laughs> I, mean, I think it's an interesting question, and I've experimented in different forms with it. Because um, one of the questions is around authenticity. I've had students, um, in the writing that they've done in my class, really look at um, this year, for example, we've been experimenting with putting our writing on blogs and having, um, always having an audience in mind when we're writing about the issues that we're exploring in the classroom. So we're talking about systems of oppression. we're talking about the prison industrial complex, we're talking about um, active movements that are happening right now um, around social justice issues. And so as students are exploring these and writing about these, we're thinking about, okay, how do we write to an audience and then get that work out there. Um, And it's one of the things I struggle with because I think It is a really valuable tool uh, for students to learn how they put their work out publicly and to think about audience engagement. Um, But it's not always authentic in the sense that students' work will be read broadly. Um, Most recently, we decided instead of I had them instead of putting their work out digitally publicly, instead to be writing advocacy letters to their local city council member around the issue that we were engaging in. And it took on a level of authenticity that was somewhat deeper than kind of randomly um, putting their work up um, digitally on the internet. And so I don't know if I have the answer to that question. Um, I think one of the things we also have experimented with, not just in my class, but in all the history classes, is trying to engage more with social media. Um, and then that's also this funny piece, um, because it's both can be meaningful for students, but then there's this engagement with a very personal area of students' lives um, and what is and isn't appropriate to regulate about how students present themselves in that space. Um, yeah, so lots of questions. Curious what Eddie thinks.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Perry. Um, I also agree. I think. Uh, it's extremely challenging as far as having those authentic conversations. Um, but I guess I I'll try to speak more towards like what teachers can possibly do right and use as far as digital tools. Um, and I I agree. I think social media, um, the use of YouTube, um, at least in Los Angeles Unified School District, um, we are now being allowed to use YouTube in the classroom. Um, and for my youth, they all have iPads and so they can actually access um, the Internet with their iPads and so that's allowed them and myself to kind of rethink the way I teach um, and to be able to incorporate uh, technology in the classroom so I feel I'm learning along with my students as far as um, seeing what's out there as well as train uh, professional development for educators, um, reaching out to folks like yourself that might have already started on this and having you know youth blog but I guess what, what I've done is um, making sure that when we're using technology, you know, how can we use it in also in a scholarly way, right, so even when it's filtering, even Google searches as a search engine, but you know, going to Google scholars and searching, right, um, educational articles that might be linked to um, the particular topic that we're discussing in class. Um, I think of, you know, docu- documentary footage, you know, when we're thinking of, you know, how do we make this authentic you know for the students and the audience and even though it was a a different decade um, or whatever we might be looking at whether it's the civil rights era I think there's a lot of great footage out there that now I'm able to bring into the classroom where students could hear what youth were feeling at that time um, and that feeling of empowerment after hearing specifically with the civil rights era how so many youth were um, involved in the movement and in organizing Um, so I think when I make the link between uh, you know what's happening today with a lot of the social ills that have continued to plague us and have plagued um, people of color in the past it's a great connection that I've been able to bring in into the classroom Um, and then you know even opportunities like you were saying you know I was just thinking of a lesson uh, a a little while ago that I did with one with actually with all my US history classes because I feel with my ethnic studies classes it lends itself more to these opportunities right Um, but I guess we're gonna be moving on to those type of questions in the next few minutes but even with my regular US history class I know when we had everything kind of coming together with the you know um, the uh, umbrella uprising in Hong Kong when we had Ayotzinapa Napa in Mexico um, when we had um, you know and still have all of these issues still going on but um, with Black Lives Matter being labeled as Black Lives Matter um, we were able to pull in a lot of those events on in real time right Um, And we were able to do some really cool activities in the classroom with using uh, their their iPads and and my access to YouTube.
1: Awesome. And John, I wanted to see if you wanted to jump in. I know you do work with community organizations as well as with teachers and young people. And what you've seen about digital media and authentic audience and how to navigate those challenges.
5: I'm just thinking historically because, Nicole, you mentioned we started doing our our youth participatory action research back in, in the late 90's. And when we began, we didn't use much digital media, it was young, young adults or adults in classrooms with young people, um, with notepads, reading Frere, reading Jean Anion, reading other critical sociology very closely with highlighters, that was our technology. Um, and then going out and interviewing other young people, doing surveys with other young people over time we began to incorporate um, various different forms of digital media which I think were both engaging for young people were were vehicles for young people to feel a new sense of technical power but then also became a way to insert the voices and ideas of young people into the broader public sphere and we did that as young people would present their work sometimes through GIS maps sometimes through videos I recall in particular in in 2002 Um, there was a statewide class action um, lawsuit in California, Williams versus California, that was challenging the substandard conditions that prevailed in a lot of schools around the state. And one of the groups of students took this amazing video at a couple different schools of these conditions. And when they presented this to civil rights attorneys, the civil rights attorneys said, you know, we have all these depositions, we have all this evidence, but this is some of the most compelling evidence that we have to make the case for the unconstitutionality of prevailing conditions.
1: That's awesome. And I think uh, the power of Twitter today that has that democratizing force so that young people can have their voices out there is also great. I've been trying to get John to go on Twitter, but he's not doing it yet. OK. I think I,
3: if I could jump in, I just feel like I need to speak to um, some of the work that my students did do. And I think thinking about this question, I was thinking more around kind of blog tools such as that um, that I think are actually pretty useful as I think more about it the way that students are able to comment and engage with each other in like these broad conversations where in the classroom we can create space for deep levels of student conversation but fundamentally they're not all speaking to each other at once and some of that stuff can happen online and I think that's kind of the richness of it. but. Um, last year around the Black Lives Matter and anti-police brutality organizing a group of my ninth graders really took on that issue and we started using social media as a way and they created a hashtag around this movement of high school students. Uh, free Oakland was hashtag free Oakland um, was what they put out to organize marches and actions by high school students around those issues and I think That is how they were able to connect with each other. And so what we were doing in the classroom around studying the issue and talking about organizing strategy, they were then translating on their own time. Um, And so I think a lot of the time, like, the digital tools aren't necessarily even what we teach, but it's how they're able to translate what they're learning in the classroom and make it authentic for themselves. So I was just reflecting on that because I think they did some really powerful work through that.
0: That's great. Well, I think some of you have already touched on a little bit around the sort of challenges in the digital age. So of course, um, you know, as we've all been sharing, there are so many opportunities for young people to get their voices out there, to uh, mobilize other people to investigate or research issues. but of course we know that with any sort of new genre, there are also nuances to consider and different things to sort of understand and reflect on. so, um, I know Perry, you touched a little bit on this idea of like an audience problem, right? You can just put your stuff out there, but do you actually have an authentic audience for it? I think Eddie, in talking about you know research and also John, it's like there's so many sources out there now. If young people go online and do a search, if it's Google or Google Scholar, they're gonna get you know a ton of um, sources. So how do we help young people think about the credibility of those sources that they find? So I'm wondering, I would love to think with you all a little bit about, you know, what's the role of educators in helping young people navigate this new landscape? Um, so we've talked a little about the opportunities, but what about these challenges, and, and what are some ways
2: that you all think educators can play a role in that?
0: I hate to put, you know, Harry and Eddie on the spot, but I don't know if one of you minds starting us off
2: and...
4: Sure, I'll, I'll go first this time. <laughs> um, yeah, when thinking about that i I was just I was thinking of you know what when I'm thinking of other teachers here at my school site, right, and the familiarity that we need, even with adults um, and the use of technology in the classroom, um, I feel that you know when even using like how John was talking about um, old traditional ways of you know researching or taking notes right now you have an iPad where you can use um, notability and other things right to take down notes but um, I think some of the fundamentals obviously are always crucial such as like sourcing right Um, we very much do that with the sources that we're filtering and receiving because we're just so bombarded with so many things when you plug in any type of right word on any search engine you'll get a lot of results so Um, always asking of, you know, who is the author, who is the audience? Um, Is the source credible? How do we know if it's credible, right? Um, Those kind of fundamental things that we do when we look at biases and when we're looking at, you know, primary documents and secondary sources. um, With text, it's the same way. It's, you know, just now looking at it digitally. Um, But also even learning myself, right, with assigning projects on Google Docs, um, assigning projects on Keynote. Um, really pushes me to learn and the students and so together I feel um, we, we we grow together in in, uh, in these opportunities and these assignments and these projects but I, I for me I think that the thing that um, holds back a lot of teachers is just that not knowing how to navigate through it um, not feeling comfortable with it but I think there's a lot of value in being vulnerable and allowing yourself to be seen that way by your students because um, it is a new age, and I think that together, right, we we progress and we grow to you know, and that way we navigate through these challenges together because the same questions that they come up with are usually the same questions that I have as well.
3: Um, thanks that gets some thoughts flowing. Um, in terms of challenges, I mean, the, one of the first things I thought about was just how we teach students and talk to students around privacy issues um, that have to do with the work that they produce for us. For example, when I ask students to write their about pages for their blog, the level of comfort that they feel revealing deeply personal um, stories about their own lives publicly on the internet. Like, how do, what is my role as an educator to support them in a certain level of self-censorship around what we put out publicly? and what are the norms of their generation as opposed to mine around what is appropriate and how do they think about their own safety and security in that process. Like those are really deep conversations to be having with 14 year olds and really critical. Um, But that I think is, is something that comes up and it comes up both in the context of the writing they do academically and also how they interface with the school when all of their personal life is available to administration, right? Um, that sees them on Facebook and that really needing to be like aware of those things. Um, when you were talking about evaluating bias in sources, I, mean, I think that there's such a wealth, there's so many sources. If you ask students to research a particular issue or a historical moment or whatever the content might be, the, the, there is an enormity of sources that they might look at and they're really still developing and probably won't develop until they're 19, 20, 21 the lens that they need to really be able to identify the political differences and ideological differences um, between sources, to be able to say, okay, I'm hearing a certain perspective and I can guess or make assumptions about where this is coming from and what it's being informed by. That's really hard for young people to do, um, especially young people may not have been exposed to like the large variety of different political perspectives. I think a lot of my students haven't been exposed to some of the more conservative perspectives in their own personal lives that they might see in the media and their day-to-day lives, and so don't really know how to translate it or make sense of it. Um, and so I think that can be really challenging for them to engage with. Um, yeah, so those are some places to start.
0: That's great. Thank you both. I I feel like you're both... Um, touching on really key considerations for educators and I'm wondering John or Nicole if, if there's anything you'd wanna add to that broadly but also it just makes me think about how different it is for young people to think about developing their civic and political identity in this day and age when it is so public um, I mean I think there are considerations about that pre-digital age um, but I also think it is very different in terms of thinking about the sort of afterlife of things that are put online in terms of young people putting themselves out there and in, in the way that they may see an issue today and what would that mean in 10 years when it's still there.
2: Yeah, I, I also,
5: it strikes me that the young person's digital identity, much like the teacher's digital identity, needs to be understood in relationship to civics, right? So, Young people and adults um, have identities digitally as consumers, as social beings, but they don't necessarily have well-developed identities as civic agents. And it's really important for, for teachers themselves to have that identity and then to help young people to reflect upon their emerging identities as civic agents, because I do think that that's distinctive from their identity, say, as a consumer.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I would add that I think that all of us here are thinking about digital citizenship. Uh, I really think there's a lot more that has to be theorized about what that means uh, being a digital civic civic agent online. Um, because I get frustrated when I go online and see that much of what you find about digital citizenship tends to be very much about um, you know not sharing too much. It's kind of like it reminds me, if if you're familiar with the Westheimer and Kahn piece that a lot of us talk about about civic. Um, engagement it's more like being a personally responsible citizen online not bullying uh, protecting yourself uh, but it stops there and I think that Eddie and Perry what you guys are talking about is that those issues definitely come up and but you're talking about them within an authentic project where it's not just saying hey be careful online it's dangerous out there don't share about yourself you are doing it in the context of a of an authentic project where there's a reason to have that conversation and have that teachable moment and I think that's a lot it makes what you're doing a lot more powerful than just saying, you know, those badges you can get online of just like digital citizen. I'm 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 safe online. I just think that's not the level of that we need to get to to get to that civic conversation. Uh, Perry, I saw you. Did you want to add something? I saw you were unmuted. Oh. Okay. Oh no. Okay. Oh, cool. <laughs> but I do want to know. So we do know that we do have the opportunity to to connect young people, like like what Eddie, what you were saying, and Perry about connecting to community movements either far and wide. Uh, So I guess I'd want to ask about the ways that you've used digital media or even just use the resources around you in your community to connect with families, to connect with community organizations and how you manage those partnerships with your instruction in the classroom. Now it's
2: Perry's turn to go first. Okay, I'll
1: go.
3: (laughs) there's a variety of ways we do that. Because I have the privilege of teaching in the context of a social justice pathway, community partnerships that's built into the curriculum, and I have time built in with students in the day to go out and do work in the field. Um, so it's not always the challenge of having to pull um, community organizing and that type of work into the classroom environment. We can actually leave the school together to do that work. think um, the with my ninth graders, um, th- that process looks at different points in the year. We take on diff- we take on issues, and so that tends to look more like having guest speakers come into the classroom, students doing Skype sessions. I forgot about that, that's a digital thing. So I've had students Skype when they're Um, We're researching Black Lives Matter or we're researching the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment or different community organizations that they looked at, um, Communities for a Better Environment in Oakland, right, that they decided to look at and research, where they were then able to Skype and engage with the organizers and interview them to learn more about the work that they're doing. Um, So that was one way of being able to connect them in. Um, in 10th grade, my students go out and do an organizing fellowship. Um, they're working with an organization called Casa Justa Just Cause and the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, working on issues around gentrification, um, uh, reentry services for formerly incarcerated people, um, and uh, transportation issues for youth. And so they're going out as part of their school day and door knocking, phone banking, working one-on-one with organizers helping to organize community meetings and so really learning kind of this hands-on approach of what what does it look like to apply the theory that we learn in the classroom like we do a whole series where we watch all these films um, kind of like Eddie was talking about of youth-led movements historically and they 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 analyze the tactics and the strategy of those movements and then now they're applying it and saying okay this is the issue we're trying to solve how do we use these tactics that we've seen in our film study or these activists that we've interviewed in the past to get laws passed in Oakland um, to protect tenant rights Um, and so there's kind of that applied aspect to it that I think is what makes it meaningful to them not just
2: academic coursework all
4: right, Eddie. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just so much, right? I guess uh, when thinking about creating partnerships, uh, advice that I would give teachers, um, it very much has to align, I would say, with what the focus is in whatever project, like Perry was uh, referring to, because just so much sometimes that we have our students involved in. Um, as a teacher, just finding those uh, Allies within the campus, within the community, with parents, um, and establishing these relationships and making sure that you're nurturing them so they're ongoing. Um, I think oftentimes at schools we have folks that come in um, and it's a one and done deal, and so you don't build um, community with those folks, you don't uh, build longevity and continuity, and so um, I think students are very observant to know those type of organizations, and so. Um, I think in terms of creating meaningful partnerships, uh, there's got to be some real stakes and accountability on all ends, right? I think a lot of times we put so much of the onus on, on the young folks, um, but I think it right very much has to go back on whoever we're creating those partnerships with. Um, for myself, um, for one example, so with uh, I run a program called the Urban Scholar Compadres. Um, it's a 9th grade, I mean ninth through 12th grade, young males, um, young male ethnic studies focus curriculum with a YPAR component, um, which Nicole was referring to the Youth Participatory Action Research. Um, and so I got my schooling working with Nicole, with John Rogers and other folks. And so I've found ways to incorporate YPAR into my classroom. And so for one example with my young men, um, every year we started, well now it's going into our fifth year, we have an event called the, the Bull Tie Event. Um, and the idea behind it um, is having the young men uh, wear bow ties, right, so dress up that day. Um, and we have a motivational speaker come and speak to them. We have them invite their mentor. And a lot of times, um, in, especially in, uh, in our communities, we never really formalize, you know, like, you're my mentor, I'm your mentee. Um, it's just more informally. And so it's kind of recognizing that and trying to nurture that relationship and so whoever it may be it doesn't matter in terms of gender um, we invite these folks um, but in the process of doing this we've created a great partnership with the parent center um, at our school and so um, who typically tend to be a lot of the, uh, the moms on campus of students um, who, who their students are on campus um, so these, uh, these parents um, now look forward to this event every year um, if it wasn't for them a lot of it would not be done Um, As far as just making logistically the location look beautiful, um, in addition to kind of you know uh, working on bringing the food, the 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 beverages, um, making it just work, right? And so even starting off there, now we've had opportunities where we bring in some of these parents to come and speak to our young men, especially when we get into feminism um, and we get into issues of uh, you know family and. Um, and the role of a uh, young Latino male in our community. Um, and so that, that's just kind of an example of how we started off with one event, the Bull Tie event, but now it's, it's grown to mean something else where the mothers are now connected to um, what we're doing in the classroom, which is extremely powerful. And um, another partnership that I would say in terms of the community um, that we've created uh, is working with the Social Justice Learning Institute. It's a nonprofit um, headquartered out of Inglewood, California. Um, our a really good friend uh, for a lot of us in the panel, Dr. D'Artagnan Scores, has started this nonprofit and it started looking at young Black males because of um, incarceration rates, recidivism, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, working with him, we actually expanded and we get support through the Social Justice Lear- Learning Institute um, with our young Latino males here at Roosevelt, um, and that's allowed us a lot of additional support and ongoing support. Um, where we have a college representative or a rep that they have in their office that will focus on making sure that our young men are not just graduating but going to college or getting ready for a vocational career um, and so this is right something that we plan every year as far as you know including it in their budget um, uh, there are folks that provide us with retreats up to Big Bear um, to build community and so these are the type of partnerships I think you know, that I sought out um, but fortunately um, I've had folks you know, respond to these invitations and it started really small and then it's continued to grow um, and one last one that I'll make a plug in as far as another partnership because of the focus right so one of our YPAR research project focus it was on just the incarceration rate of, of Latino males specifically um, and the high dropout rates and the association of, or the statistics that if you drop out, the, the probability that you'll end up in prison at one point or another in your life. And so, um, right over the bridge from where we're at is Homeboy Industry, which is mm-hmm. um, the largest um, gang intervention, rehabilitation, reentry program in the nation. And Father Greg Boyle um, has a strong connection to Boyle Heights. Um, there's no connection in terms of the name. A lot of students think, like, is that the reason why they call him that? It's like, no, that, that's his name. Um, and so we've begun a partnership with Homeboy Industry. Um, he's donated a class set of Tattoos on the Heart, which is a great book that he wrote. So we mm-hmm. embedded that in the curriculum. And this all started with just going on a field trip out there. Um, and so I think it starts really small. And as long as you approach them, as far as I know with Perry, right, with the work that you do, I can imagine, right, that there's organizations just wanting to help you out, right? Like, they're, they're in, in a sense, like, willing, but it also has to be, you know, we meet halfway where, you know, we're coming out to them and showing interest as much as they're going to put in with us.
2: Can, I yeah.
4: just to ask a quick follow-up question to Eddie.
5: I'm curious, given the distance between East LA and Inglewood, have you used social media as a way to connect? the young people
4: you're working with the young people that Dr. Scores is working with in Englewood. Yes, uh, that's what we're actually moving towards now, right? We're getting to kind of the level where Perry's at where we're actually blogging on um, the Social Justice Learning Institute website. So now they've started not only a Facebook page, which again, you know, we have to have those conversations um, every so often as far as you know what folks are posting right and how appropriate you know the things that they might be saying um, in that public forum but we also are now finding ourselves in um, Google Hangouts just like what we're doing right now where we're trying to bring you know folks together during our class periods or after school um, to continue you know some conversations that we've had when we've been brought together because as you mentioned um, going from East Los Angeles to Inglewood is about an hour traffic and so it's not too often that we get the opportunity to go out there um, and mingle with the folks.
1: I'm also, oh, Sorry, go ahead Perry. I was going to ask you and Eddie a follow-up as well about uh, you know teachers that might think that this is uh, work that's above and beyond the work of academic teaching um, and how overwhelming it can feel if you're a new teacher or if you don't have the networks that you two both clearly have in your communities and uh, just kind of how you would, and also the, also one thing that goes along with that is the fear sometimes that I hear from teachers about if they acknowledge that they are civic beings that have opinions and belong to different organizations that somehow that means they can't be objective teachers or they're going to be proselytizing to their students the stuff that people get worried about. Um, so how do you number one would counsel a teacher who maybe isn't sure how to start getting involved in these partnerships and number two how to not be afraid to even talk about controversial issues when it can seem like you're um, trying to bias students even though you're not and you're just being a human being?
3: (laughs) That's a big question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think my most basic response to that is that it is really challenging, messy work. There's not... I don't feel like it's like oh, yeah, totally, you should do this. This is the easier way to teach. It's not. It's the most fulfilling i mean, it's deeply fulfilling, and there's and it's not just um, students are bought in to classrooms and academic experiences when they really get why and when it is meaningful to them and relates to their own lives, and that gets like I feel so blessed to be able to teach content and teach in a way that you know, there are things that I struggle with in the classroom and it can always grow as a teacher, but the, I don't hear from students, why does this matter? That's not, that's not a challenge. They get it. They get why it matters, and when someone asks, why does this matter, I never have to answer. Because there's like an out, there's this outrage from some of the students in the class that are like... What do you mean? Why does this matter? Like this is, I'm gonna like, you know, share with you how how this affects our family. Remind you how this affects your brother that I know. Whatever, um, so they kind of hold each other accountable to the content. Um, the piece about community partnerships, I think, is some of the richest work and the most challenging. Um, it is, you know, I think even for many organizations that. Have a deep interest and belief in youth leadership. As we know, as educators, it is very different um, to believe in youth leadership on an abstract level and to facilitate it in the concrete. Young people are ever changing, um, super moody, um, and in many ways, way more militant and confrontational than adults. And so, organizations need to be ready to really embrace. The voice that young people bring, if they want to engage in an authentic way, and I think those are the partnerships that are strongest and most important to build, are with organizations that have a deep care and openness to youth leadership, um, and and have a long-term investment in the in the community. There are many. There's like a plethora. I think one of the things that can be overwhelming is, as you were saying, there are so many organizations at this point in time and so much grant money and different groups that are looking for these partnerships with schools um, particularly right now in California that's a big theme um, these industry partnerships um, and so really sorting through and figuring out what organizations we can build with that's going to be sustainable in the long term that's that's super um, essential work because otherwise those partnerships fall off you know the next year um, the other piece about it, though, and I think what does make the work easier is I think there's nine adults that work with my students on a weekly basis in some sort of mentorship role. Um, so they have many people that they're having these conversations with because of the organizational partnerships. Um, there are issues that I'm not equipped to deal with, times that I, students that I deeply connect with, students that I don't. But there are other people that are holding the work because of the partnerships that we've built. And so there is like a emotional um, level of labor that is part of civic engagement work and should be. And if it's not part of the civic engagement work, then it's not being done right. Um, but it doesn't need to be held alone. And when we're doing this in a deep way, in a network with other community groups, then we're not isolated in our own classroom. And there are other people to be really building this vision with. What would you say, John? I was just oh, going <laughs> to.
5: I just wanted to build on on one thing that Perry said. It, in my experience of working with youth organizing groups and youth development groups, the, it, there's this dance of sorts, in the sense that if an organization is only focused on young people's learning, and not at all focused on any real politics, then it seems inauthentic. On the other hand, if the organization only looks to young people as, as in effect, young people that they can use to win a political game and doesn't care at all about the young person's development and learning, then, then that's really problematic. And so the organizations that I think are most vital to partner with are ones that are holding both of those goals simultaneously and thinking about mm-hmm. both of them. And I think that educators can really play a powerful role in helping organizations as partners think about these two roles simultaneously.
0: I have one more question, but Eddie, I want to give you a chance to jump in on that if you wanted to add.
4: Sure. Um, Yeah, because I'm just thinking of of the question, right, as far as those teachers that, you know, how do I even fit this in my schedule, right? Um, common Core standards, standardized testing. Where can I possibly right? If they're if they're stuck on a pacing plan, right? At what point would I be able to do anything like this, right? So, I, if when thinking about like schools, I think of that group of teachers, and then those teachers that want to do this. But where do I turn to to get that support to to um, to be able to you know kind of roll this out, right? Um, So for those individuals, right, that are just more concerned, going back to what what John was saying, um, you know, it it doesn't have to be one or the other, right, just like he was mentioning. Um, I think, you know, what I've done early on after having um, been trained in in YPAR practices, um, I would, for all my 11th grade uh, students, so I have like about 120 students, right, in, in a year, um, at the end of the state testing, which usually was you know, early May or so, I believe it was, um, for a solid month, then I would do YPAR, right, with all my 11th graders. And at my school, um, and in the state of California, um, high school students are supposed to meet a service learning requirement. And at my high school, that would happen in every U.S. history class in 11th grade. So it just kind of fell together um, in that you know I was able to address you know all of that in one project and at least it gave them a taste and so what Nicole was referring to in the beginning of a five-week intensive everyday at UCLA doing this work I would try to do that within a month span right every day in the classroom but luckily because I had uh, a, I was in a Humanitas team doing interdisciplinary work with an English teacher which is very helpful if folks are working in that type of system with uh, my colleague my English teacher um, they were getting double the amount of time in the school day to do this work. So while in my classroom we were developing you know their their research topic and it ranged from community issues um, to school issues uh, and so we would break up groups into fours and uh, and then as they were doing that and as eventually as they were creating their survey statements and interview questions in their English class, they were getting a lot of the theory right So they were getting, you know, Sono Solor, Bernal. They're getting Yoso. They're getting Noguera, uh, Andrade. You, uh, you, know, and the list goes on and on, right? Um, and so it was, it was a, it was a happy marriage in, in that we were getting that support. I was getting that support. Um, so that allowed my students to really feel, you know, being civically engaged because you know the whole year. I think that I anger my students a lot, right, with what we cover, and so. I don't want them feeling, you know, empowered, but then what do I do with this? How can I even move forward? How can I propose policy or how can I give people marching orders that this is not just on us, but you have a role in this, and I'm going to tell you exactly what that is, right? Um, And so that's how I was able to use that time. Um, But now it's a little different uh, because of the way the format of my school has changed a bit, so I'm able to do, you know, YPAR earlier on in the year.
0: That's great. Thank you all. So, I just have one last question, and we only have a few more minutes, so maybe people can sort of share brief final thoughts. Um, and the question that I'm thinking, and, and you all have touched on this, but would love to just kind of highlight the unique opportunity that we have to talk about doing this work in schools, because I think, you know, civic engagement work often happens in many settings, and sometimes Um, you know it's after school or in more informal learning settings and I think um, you know Eddie and Perry you both are you know doing the hard work of integrating this into a school district and into the school day and I think you know I think one of the things that we and especially in the work that we've been doing in Oakland with Perry and other um, amazing teachers is really you know making the effort to really work with the district because we really believe that schools are powerful places to access youth and to really ensure that this sort of civic engagement youth uh, work is equitable, that we're not just reaching the students who are able to you know show up after school or who are volunteering or who are part of this club but really you know how do we really think about um, serving all young people to really develop their civic and political selves and to really have the tools I think especially in the digital age to get their voices out there and make change and so I wonder if If folks want to share as final thoughts, but you can tack on other things if you don't want to attend to this question, but I I just think it would be wonderful to hear, you know, what advice or strategies do you have for doing
2: this work in schools and really making sure it's equitable and reaching all youth? Anyone can jump in, so.
3: I guess I think... This is starting to be touched on. I feel like the first thing that we need to do is fight for this type of work to be structured into the curriculum. Civic engagement work, ethnic studies frameworks, that we need to rethink how we teach. We can't just add in civic engagement into the enormity of the standards that we have right now. And so there, I think, does have to be more of a kind of transformative process on a district level and in a school where there is a deep dedication to it and where we have the prep time that we need to be able to set up these partnerships um, and support students through the process. Um, That being said, (laughs) more concretely um, and immediately, um, I think that, Some of the pieces that have really helped bring this work into other parts of our school are the ways um, that we've created events and peer education projects that tie in other teachers and spread and engage other teachers. So for I have students who developed workshops, um, peer education workshops that they then went into other classrooms to do. And so then they were participating and other teachers were able to see, oh, this is what this work looks like. Right? They're seeing my students um, take on this leadership. They're seeing what they're capable of um, and what kind of civic engagement might mean. And from there I'm getting interest And um, in how do we incorporate this more. So I think there's also this slow process Of, like, how within a school itself do we engage with our colleagues and support our colleagues to plug in so that these
2: projects don't live isolated in one classroom um, or one school?
1: Uh, Eddie, as you're speaking about your experience doing this in the classroom, I'm really curious about. And I know that you, were, you we have the symbiotic relationship between classroom practice and out-of-school spaces with the council, and how you think in-school and out-of-school time could actually work together, and maybe hit different competencies, but be a kind of symbiotic relationship. So I'm wondering kind of how you thought about that with YPAR coming into the classroom.
4: All right, hold on. I just, it just furls on me. Was that question towards me, Nicole?
1: <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Just about like the out-of-school space of the council, and then bringing it into the classroom and doing classroom civic engagement with more constraints.
4: Okay, Nico.
1: Yeah. Did you hear oh,
4: me? Sorry, no. I I just kind of froze, so I, I didn't hear the question at all.
1: No, no problem. Okay. We're just as we're doing our final thoughts, we're thinking about this kind of classroom time gotcha. and how the experience in out-of-school civic learning spaces like the council is one thing, but then it's, you know, you're dealing with different constraints in the classroom Mm -hmm. and how you feel, why you feel it's important to not just do it outside of the classroom, why it needs to be in the school day. I think Eddie froze. (laughs) Uh, John, do you want to jump in while Eddie's coming back, just about kind of what you hear from this conversation?
5: Sure. Let me pick up on one thing that that Perry was saying, because she was suggesting that In order to advance and expand the work of civic education in schools, teachers need to push on the system, whether it be at the district level, at the state level, or federal level, to ensure that the conditions are in place in their schools, time, other supports that allow for civic education to occur. And I would suggest that that's exactly right. And that in the process of engaging in the civic process of transforming Public education. Teachers develop a set of skills around civics. They develop practice in the civic domain that is really important for them as they then go back and work with young people around civics. The teachers that are practiced in civics are better at teaching civics.
1: Looks like Eddie was jumping in and out. Are you back with us, Eddie?
4: Yes, yes, I am. I hope it's working now.
1: Cool. Yeah, okay. so just last thoughts about civic education in the classroom.
4: Um. Yeah. I with what Perry was saying before, it froze me out. Um. I completely agree. I think. Um. It it needs to start with. You know. It can't just be an end of the year project. Doing this type of. You know. Trying to civically engage our students. Um. There has to be a huge paradigm shift and transformative way in which we teach. Um. I think we definitely need culturally relevant curriculum. Um. I think by doing that, we provide that that counter narrative that.
1: Looks like Eddie might be a little frozen again. Uh, I know that I know one thing that what he's saying makes me think about, and what I've thought about a lot when it comes to the council, the council's work, and the kind of um, education that it gave me in an informal space. That after I completed my doctorate and went back into classroom teaching, it definitely changed who I was as a teacher, uh, and it challenged me to bring the informal practice of YPAR into a formal classroom space. So I feel like the it can be done, like Eddie's saying. Like having those experiences can then lead you back into the classroom in a powerful way. And Eddie, I don't know if you wanted to finish up. No, probably not. But see, this is the other thing about civics in the digital age. It reminds you that uh, these are some of the things we have to to troubleshoot as well as when our technology freezes. But that's okay. We know how to keep on moving. Um, the um, I wanted to since we have we're almost out of time. I just wanted to go over a few final things. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everyone for an amazing conversation, That I hope folks that are watching this live and folks that are watching this later are going to be able to uh, have a lot of food for thought about how to incorporate civics into their work. Um, unfortunately, this wraps up the final webinar of the t- March 2016 series on redesigning civic education for the digital age. Uh, but feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter with the hashtags ConnectedLearning, Civics, and to NextPrez Uh, There will also be a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv with other curated content on the way. Uh, If you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV, which is now produced by the National Writing Project's Educator Innovator, please visit www.educatorinnovator.org and sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, It was really great getting to talk across this work and we hope that current and future viewers of the webinar will reach out to us and make connections in your own work. So I want to thank everyone here, uh, and everyone have a great night. Bye. Thank you.